few weeks ago, at my wife's suggestion, we watched a magic show on TV. It was a, a taping of a live performance. This was a show, it was a very celebrated show called In and of Itself, starring a magician named Derek Del Gaudio. It was performed at a a fancy off-Broadway theater for like 500 nights or something like this. The the movie version followed the arc of the show, but it also sort of incorporated footage from several different nights featuring some, some significant variations and, and different audience responses. You know, as a kid, I was small for my age and not good at sports and lacked social skills. So I was naturally into magic for a while. And this was cool. I mean, he was very good. He was um, incredibly good. <laughs> he was incredibly good at card magic. And he had one illusion involving a handwritten letter that was about as good as anything I've ever seen. I, I saw David David Copperfield fly on stage as a kid and and this was cooler than that to be honest even even on a tv and it's the sort of thing that if you were there in person and it happened to you it might change your life right not because magic is real but because it, it had that kind of emotional force to it but the, the the trick that has stuck with me the most from that taped performance was not the trick that is most spectacular. And it's not the trick that's hardest to figure out a possible solution for. And it's not even the trick that's sort of most physically uncanny. Though, you know, if we were to go back into Freud, it probably probably does touch on some of his sense of the uncanny. But th this was the last trick of the night. And, and if you're a spoiler person, then this is a spoiler. So be be informed. Before the show, in the, the lobby or the anteroom or some, some little part of the theater, there's this board set up that we see in the taping. It's this big board set up, and it looks almost like an enormous advent calendar with just lots and lots and lots of, of identical cards on it. These manila cards on little hangers on this giant board. And all of the cards say in big block letters the words, I am. But then underneath them, they have some other word. And, and to my, the impression I get is that they, all of the words were different. There were no duplicates. And they say all different kinds of things. All of them refer to some sort of person. Some of them are serious. Some of them are silly. Some of them are personal. Some of them are sort of more official. I am a father. I am a leader, I am a teacher, I am a nobody, or I am nobody. So they, they, they all had different labels, and the audience was instructed to go into this anteroom and pick a card. Pick a card that, that you know, for each audience member, pick a card that you think corresponds to you as you see yourself. And then the, the, they, they took these cards and there's some sort of perforation. They folded them in half or they, they tore them off or something. But they basically, they, they, they all brought these cards into the theater and they laid them down in a stack on a table. And 
the lights came down, uh, that's when Del Gaudio came in. There was no record anywhere of what anybody had chosen other than that person's memory of what he had chosen. So he, he went through the whole show. And it's an elaborate show. It's, as I said, it's, it's, it's really good uh, magic if, if you're into that kind of thing. Uh, and, he, and he's also he's a good storyteller. He has a, a good uh, stage presence and a sort of a warm hangdog persona. He's pretty, pretty winning. But he ends the show by addressing the audience with the lights up. And he acknowledges, he says, well, you know, obviously for a lot of you, when someone asks you to pick a card that identifies you, <laughs> pick a card with a label that corresponds to who you are, you're going to, a lot of you are going to do this sort of jokingly. You're not going to, you're not going to pick something that's really how you, that represents you as you are. You're going to pick something silly. I am a clown. I am a dictionary salesman, whatever. Not that dictionary salesman is not a serious job. My dad was a dictionary salesman for a while. Delgado acknowledges that that many people are, are not going to take this task seriously. So he said, that's fine. But also for some of you, when you're given an opportunity to identify yourself in this way, it's going to strike a nerve. And you are going to sincerely pick a label that does correspond to who you feel you are. So he says to the audience, he says, for those of you who took this task seriously, stand up. So maybe half the audience stands up. It's hard to say. This is this is one of those places in the, in the movie where they switch among various nights of the performance. But it's a it's like a 300 seat theater and a good 100, 150 or more or more people stand up. So then he goes to the very first person in the first row who is standing. And he tells her what she picked and he goes to the second person and the third person and he goes up to every single person in the theater who is standing and he looks them in the eye and he says i see a father i see a leader i see a teacher i see nobody and people tear up they're stunned of course he milks it a little he doesn't exactly feign a difficulty as if he's straining to discern what some person is or isn't but he does let it sink in with each individual audience member and the trick doesn't get old every time with every individual audience member. It's really moving. And this totally makes sense. I mean, I totally believe that if I had been in this show, it would really have gotten to me. You know, and it gets to you a little bit, even just watching it from your couch at home. But this trick has stuck in my mind, I think, as I said, partly because it's, it, it's not 
the most spectacular or the most inconceivable, right? Because, of course, we already know because we're watching a taping of this that all of this is on tape. All of this was filmed. It's not, it's not at all impossible to imagine that somebody could do this. And, and furthermore, it's not as if this is a unique trick, right? Because this happens every single day. And not just to a select audience off-Broadway in, in New York City, but to every single one of us who uses a computer or a phone, right? The shoes you were shopping for yesterday, the, the diapers you mentioned in conversation while your Alexa was on, the new movie that you mentioned in a text message to a friend, it, it, it pops up in an advertisement while you're on Facebook or you know wherever you are, right? We become very used to being tracked and read because that's really what the trick is, right? The trick is to give you a choice, give you some options to choose among, because these people didn't write their own cards, right? This was, a, this was essentially a multiple choice test. It was a big multiple. There was a, a, a a very multiple test. There were lots and lots of these cards, hundreds of these cards to choose from, but they were, there was a fixed number and they were predetermined. And you chose from among these, these given options, what you, how you saw yourself or how you chose to see yourself in that moment. And then some greater intelligence paid attention to what you chose. And pegged you with that choice and it followed you even though you had not known that it was going to follow you. And that is pretty much what we have become inured to. I mean, this, that, that's what we are. We're numb to that particular stage trick online. But the difference is not that Delgaudio was able to do this. It was not that he identified the, the pair of headphones that was recommended in the latest video from your favorite ASM artist, and he was able to link you with that particular product an hour later. Jeff Bezos does that to you every fucking day. What's impressive and this is where that stage manner of his really matters. What's impressive is that it seemed as if he cared. And this is really where, you know, and I, I've, I've beat this horse a little bit on this show, but I'm, you know, we live in a secular culture and particularly among people who, who read a lot of books and go to college and you know, travel in the sort of the social circles that I tend to travel in, and at least a lot of the people who listen to this show travel in. Though, though curiously, this is a show, despite my being an incorrigible heathen, this is a show that weirdly has a lot of religious Catholics and at least one Protestant minister who, who listens. And, and God bless all of you. I don't, I don't believe for a minute, but you know, I, do, I do have respect for belief. And I am very skeptical of most people's casual claims to atheism. It has become almost a cliche to say that contemporary progressives uh, you know, are still religious, but they have shifted the emphasis of certain religious patterns of thought onto other categories of concern. 
right? So, so social justice replaces cosmic justice or something like this. That, that's a cliche. We, we've heard arguments to that effect a uh, hundred times. So I, I don't need to even wade into any of that. But I do think that whatever, however you, you slice it, and this goes honestly for a lot of people who, who claim to be Christian as well, or claim to be religious in any flavor. I, I, I think a lot of us are really just, we really just want to believe that that somebody is watching us, that somebody is paying attention, that it matters what we choose, what we do. And, and maybe part of what brought tears to people's eyes in Del Gaudio's show was that he was giving voice for a moment to that wish that somebody is paying attention. And in watching the show and thinking back over it, what, what really came to mind was this little church I saw 20 years ago almost. It's a church in a, a tiny little town in, in Tuscany called Arezzo. And the church is called the Basilica of uh, San Francisco, Fran- San Francesco, San, um, San Francis. And it has inside it a, a famous f- fresco cycle. And it's, it, their paintings are, it's a, a you know, 570 years old at this point. It's a, a series of frescoes telling the story of the true cross, that is the, the cross that Jesus was crucified on, supposedly. So the, the paintings are by Piero della Francesca, and they they show this sort of a looping story that that is sort of semi-biblical, semi-apocryphal, semi-mythological. It's just this sort of wild, this wild ride, as my wife might say, across thousands of years of history and prehistory, beginning with the death of Adam, you know, going forth, you know, beyond, well beyond, hundreds of years beyond the, the death of Jesus. Uh, so there, there are a lot of different <laughs> really rollicking scenes in this cycle, but there were a couple that really stuck in my mind when I saw it. And, and one of these was a, a big battle scene it's a battle between a Byzantine emperor named Heraclius and a Persian king named Khosros. Uh, so Khosros was just just as wealthy as you can imagine, just fabulously, fabulously rich. And he, for a while, uh, came into possession of the true cross. And, and Khosros was so rich and so powerful that he fancied himself a kind of God. So he he took the true cross because he knew that it was it was sort of powerful and, and was revered by by you know, some people. He took it and he, he installed it in a temple dedicated to himself. The god of Piero della Francesca's fresco cycle, as you can imagine, uh, frowned on this choice of Cosros's. So uh, Cosros uh, is defeated in battle by by noble Heraclius and at the far end of that scene of the battle, he's on his knees, uh, surrounded by the Byzantine soldiers, and he's gazing down, his gray beard is hanging sorrowfully from his face, and he's, he's soon to be beheaded. The, the, the cycle isn't all chronological because, of course, it's painted around the inside of this church, and so it has a kind of a, a strange, almost magical simultaneity to it. But in an, an adjacent panel, there is the scene of the Annunciation. That is, the angel Gabriel is giving the, the good news 
to the Virgin Mary that she's going to have a son. And watching over this scene is a, a bearded God the Father gazing down from heaven. Now it, it, it's really it's just a it's a it's a technical quirk. So so frescoes are painted directly into the 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 plaster, as I recall, of the wall. So when you're painting a fresco, there's there's no do-overs. They dry really, really quickly. And they're sort of very technically demanding. So you really have to get it right. And you have to get it right very quickly. So it was, it was common, as I understand, or I recall, it's been a good while since I've studied any of this stuff, for fresco painters to take sort of a, a, a paper or a cloth um, stencil, right, and basically punch holes tracing out the outlines of their, their figures and sort of chalk them up and then quickly scribble them down. So you'd have, the, the, these were called cartoons, they were sort of like big rough stenciled figures and you would use these to, to get the rough shapes down so you could quickly, quickly paint them in before everything dried. And what's funny, if you look at these paintings, if you look at the panels of the, the battle between Heraclius and Cosros, and then the, ba- the, 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 pan- the panel of the Annunciation, is that the face of Cosros is, is the same as the face of God the Father. Now, it's not just the same model. It's actually the same face. That is, Cosros is on his knees and his, he's gazing down sorrowfully because he's just lost the battle and he's about to lose his head. God the Father is gazing down with a sort of a, 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 a world-weary wisdom, but he, it's that same downward gaze. It's just that he's way up, you know, whereas Cosros is at the bottom of his panel, God the Father is at the top of his panel gazing down from the heavens. And this is presumably just a, a kind of a a time-saving problem solver. You know, Della Francesca had a lot of paintings <laughs> to pull off. He was trying to cross a lot of T's and dot a lot of I's. And it just, it, it ended up being technically convenient for him to use the same cartoon, presumably, the same little stencil for the face of Cosros and the face of God the Father. And, and it's a terrific uh, fresco cycle. Really uh, wonderful. It's worth looking up and definitely worth seeing in person if you happen ever to go to uh, Tuscany, uh, like an hour outside Florence, I think. But but I, I bring this up because it, there's something about that that's always sort of troubled me. I, I don't really suspect that Della Francesca was making any kind of particular political statement. I mean, fuck if I know. But what I will say is that today there is something a little nagging about that echo. As I said before, uh, Del Gaudio has pretty, you know, gentle, caring, sad guy eyes. He he's got a sort of a, a soft, boyish face. He's he projects a lot of empathy, and you know, I think maybe part part of why we respond so much to hearing a man like that, to seeing a man like that identify our quiet inner secrets, not even our deep secrets, not even our complexities, not even our inner mysteries, just these small, specific, privately made 
choices about ourselves, these private labels for ourselves. Part of why we respond so much is to seeing a guy like that identify these things, announce them in public. Part of why we respond so much to that is not because some profound truth has been revealed, but simply because it's comforting to think that somebody like that is the one watching us when we're alone. Because deep down we know that of course somebody is watching us all the time. Somebody is taking note of all of these private choices, of all of these secret wishes and desires and curiosities. Somebody is paying attention to all of that, but it's not Derek Del Gaudio. It's not a sweet, soft-faced, hangdog magician. Deep down, we know that in our world, in the world of Amazon and Facebook and Google and Apple, in this world, <laughs> we know in our heart of hearts that the face of God is Cosros. I'm Matthew Buckley-Smith, and you are listening to Slee Rickets. Thank you, as always, for listening, and thanks especially to all of you who have taken a moment to uh, leave a rating or review, or uh, just to subscribe or recommend the show to a friend. If you have not yet had a chance, please do go to Apple Podcasts or whatever your podcast distributor might be, and do leave a rating, leave a review, subscribe, and you know, let, let people in your life know that you listen to a really great podcast that they might like as well, unless, of course, they wouldn't, in which case, don't. I've been, I'm in the process of editing a really weird episode that I have pretty mixed feelings about, to be honest, but I, I think it's going to be interesting, and I, I should have that ready for you next week. This week, though, I do have a little bit of a grab bag of some some ideas that have, I've been kicking around, as well as some really good notes that I got from a few of you who brought up, I thought, pretty noteworthy questions. I'm going to start with a note I got from Coleman, who wrote in a while ago to suggest that uh, Ethan try memorizing poems with my my hearty agreement. He wrote in again after the the little Zoom reading. I had very very presumptuously assumed that I'd been the one to introduce Coleman to Eratosphere, and I I congratulated him on on being uh, on establishing himself so comfortably in that community. He very gently <laughs> clarified to me that he in fact learned of this podcast by way of Eratosphere, where he has been a member for, for quite some time. So I was very silly and wrong about that, but thank you, Coleman, for uh, listening to the reading as well as to the, the show in general. So he, he wrote in with a specific question that was a little bit of a follow-up to something that, that Cameron had asked during the reading about poetry and autobiography. So Coleman's, I mean, I'll read a little passage from Coleman's note. Uh, he says, how can a writer write honestly about personal relationships 
while respecting the privacy of the people they're including in their story. Most of my poems, aside from my light verse, are about my family. I've always checked with them before sharing anything, but with the kids in particular, I'm still always a little unsure how fair it is to share their stuff even with their permission. Earlier this year, I was struck by a quote from a Robert Frost letter. So this is Frost. Something has to be kept back for pressure. And to anybody puzzled to know what, I should suggest that for a beginning, it might as well be his friends, wife, children, and self. So that was Frost. This is back to Coleman. The thing is, Frost was no confessionalist, but he did write Putting in the Seed and The Silken Tent, and I'm sure plenty of other poems that seem to have come from pretty close to where he lived. And I was startled to hear him, maybe, imply in an interview with Randall Jarrell that Home Burial was inspired by a real specific couple's breakup. Anyway, as you and others suggested in the Q&A, there's always going to be some amount of fictionalizing, even in poems about real people. And maybe the important thing is to make sure the subjects get that and are okay with that, at least to the extent that they can. Uh, he goes on to, to uh, he shared a quite fine poem of his own about his children, and he mentioned that he'd he'd made sure that they were they were more or less okay with it, and even offered a disclaimer about how poetry is not life, and and so forth. So uh, I, it also sounds like um, K uh, Coleman has recently had uh, another child or a babyish child, small, very small baby child. At any rate, it sounds like he's got a slew of children. He is. Uh, almost certainly a, a better person than I am and very possibly a better father as well. Uh, in, in any case, congratulations all around, Coleman. I, I think he gets it pretty right. The, the, the question about how to treat people in your life that you write about. I, I also write a fair amount about my own personal relationships with people. And I think I have maybe never asked permission before publishing a poem. I think that's probably right. Maybe in, in one case my, with my wife, but with her, you know, we certainly have bickered with each other about things we've written because she's also a writer. But mostly there's a, di there's a real difference between to what extent we might have a, a bad personal response to the work uh, there's a difference between that and and whether or not we think the work should be published. Because I think in both, you know, I think for both of us, we the, the the real question when it comes to publication is is how good is it? And that to me is kind of the problem with this question because it's a totally valid and worthwhile ethical question. You know, how do you treat other people whom you write about, and and also know personally? How do you try not to violate their privacy or maybe to violate it only with their permission or uh, only with, with uh, some other qualifications? I, I think that's all really significant ethical subject matter. I think, though, it's just about perfectly perpendicular, just about, you know, purely independent of quality. That is, it's not just that you might have a really, really good poem that really hurts somebody's feelings. That certainly happens all the time. Uh, well, it happens some of the time. <laughs> I don't know. 
Really, really good poems don't happen that often, regardless of, of what else you might say about them. It's not just that you might have a good poem that hurts somebody's feelings. It's that you also have just innumerable bad poems, unfathomably many bad poems that make the people in your life feel perfectly fine. They're just different questions. And, uh, you know, I said in another episode of, uh, of the podcast that I thought writing or, or, or making art was amoral. I, I tend to think it is, and maybe in some cases even a little bit immoral, both in the particular instance and as a rule. There's the line that Stoppard has in Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, where the, the, the player, the lead player says, we are actors, we are the opposite of people. And that's true in another sense for writers, that I think writing is maybe always a parasitic practice. And I, I guess I, when I was a kid, uh, my among the very <laughs> quirks of my upbringing, uh, maybe the, the strangest was that Rather than tell me that I needed to grow up to make a good living or I needed to grow up to be a man uh, or to, to uh, father children or to, to marry a good woman or really to do much of anything, my, my, my dad laid out for me the, the great priority in life as making art and making it as good as you could make it. And he, he, even from an early age, from before I really had any sense of what this might mean, he said, never worry about offending or embarrassing your family. Just write what's good. Now, I have but deliberately or otherwise, I've written plenty about girlfriends, ex-girlfriends, well, one wife, <laughs> hopefully, hopefully still one wife, uh, even after this episode. My children, friends, parents, teachers. I've written a, a, a lot about people I know. I, I haven't in very many cases really told individual pieces of fact that would be all that interesting in themselves. I did. I, mean, I felt a little bit implicated by Coleman's examples that he cited, the putting in the seed and the silken tent, both wonderful poems, both, I mean, refer to another person in like fairly oblique terms. I mean, they're, they're, they're beautifully put. And of course, putting in the seed, it, it doesn't take much imagination to imagine that he's talking about his wife. And there's certainly a very strong suggestion of sex and, and fathering children. But boy, it is put about as delicately as you could put that. And a silken tent is is a is a, a an extended metaphor about what it felt like to be around a, a person, a woman. Home burial is, is of course a, a much more thorny question. If that was really based on the experience of a, of a couple that he knew, then that is that is dishing some some dirt. But I I think that where there might be a meaningful moral quest or where where the 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 ethical concerns about treating the people in your life decently might converge with artistic 
value where that might become a meaningful collision, I guess, is is in the the question. I, I tend to think of, I, I think the question I, I'm interested in when it comes to using real life subject matter in, in a poem is how is the poem doing what it's doing? Right, you, 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 you want your poem to have an effect Maybe that, you know, I think I, I always, the shorthand I always use is that, that a, the, the purpose of a lyric poem is to break a stranger's heart. It, it's, it's obviously a little bit richer and more complex than that, but it, it, to the extent to which your poem is meant to produce an effect on the reader, there's a question of exactly how you're doing it. And the analogy that came to mind was one I... I I heard about only recently from my little sister, whom you may remember from an, an earlier episode episode of the podcast. She, in addition to being a, a pianist and a businesswoman, she and her husband, my brother-in-law, are both pretty serious amateur jujitsu fighters. I don't know if they call themselves fighters. They, they practice jujitsu. And uh, they they uh, they both actually recently competed in a tournament and and they won in their divisions so so they're both very dogged uh, and and Anna Catherine turns out to be pretty good uh, you know within her size and weight and and sex category she's she's pretty good she is however very petite just on a global scale and so there's a little bit of a problem they run into sometimes because their studio is is filled mostly with men. I mean, that's true for jujitsu and, and martial arts in general, that they're, that they're overwhelmingly men who participate rather than women. There are some women and some very good ones, but, but mostly they're men. And so on any given day that she might go in to practice, it's, the chances are pretty good that she won't have a woman to spar with. Now, this might mean that she didn't spar at all or she only did other kinds of training, but she wants to get good practice. And, you know, if she were to spar with a a man who had, say, you know, 80 pounds on her along with several inches in height and reach and so forth, you know, that, that it wouldn't necessarily be close enough to be even all that instructive. But what they, the, the solution that they came up with in their studio, which is imperfect, but not meaningless, is that by the judgment of the two competitors, of the two fighters, as well as the judgment of the rest of the studio, and most importantly of their professor, which is what they call him, strangely, not, I don't know what else they would call him, but they call him professor, by, by all of their best judgment, when they, when Anna Catherine pairs up with a man to spar or to fight or however they put it, the, I think they say roll because they're all real badass and <laughs> I, I'm just waiting for her to join a motorcycle gang. When they square off to roll, she she fights with everything she's got. And the man she's fighting with doesn't hold back exactly. It's just that he is required to fight using only the principles of jujitsu. He has to use the, the techniques and the maneuvers and the principles of combat that define the art form. What he can't do 
is overwhelm her by sheer strength. Because it might be that her form is perfect and she's got a, a perfectly solid arm bar on him and he can just wrench his way out of it because he's a lot stronger. And, and that that's where the, the, the meaningful competition would break down. And so he, he restrains himself to the extent that he is sort of fighting only with skill and he doesn't use overwhelming force to win. And in that way, they're able to have, you know, if not exactly a fair fight, a, a fight that is instructive for both of them. And that is a little bit how I feel about using real life subject matter in poems. Not that whether it's nice or not, or, or, or good or fair is a separate question, but just in terms of the value of the poem itself. I think it's really meaningful to ask, how is the poem achieving what it's achieving? When you read this poem, do you gasp because the thing that is being said in the poem really happened? Or is it because of the artfulness of the way in which it is said? And, you know, the juicier the tidbit, the more artful I would say the poem has to be. Not to justify it ethically. There's probably no justifying it ethically. But to justify it artistically. If you don't want to be shown up by your scoop. If this is just a poem that is a piece of information and anybody who managed to get it down in a poem would have effectively written the same poem, then maybe you haven't done anything worthwhile as a poem. Then you're just being a gossip, <laughs> which you might be anyway. But I think that's sort of the standard I use. And that's maybe where there is a little bit of a question of where, where as a secondary effect, I think that rule of thumb or that, that principle tends to diminish the instances in which you have simply dished on your friend or your child or your wife. I, I, I think that the, 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 I mean, I would also say that the, the dishier your subject matter, assuming you have constructed an artful enough poem for it, the more plausibly deniable it probably ought to be. And that is just as an ethical question. I think very seldom say in writing about an ex-girlfriend, have I named her in the fucking poem? <laughs> so there is that to consider, but I think it was a really, it's a really thoughtful question. And as I say, uh, God knows about the poetry, but man, Coleman is a is a far better human being than I am and, uh, on several counts. I, I also got a really good note from a, a new listener named Alice. So Alice, this is, and, and I did, uh, um, I'm assuming by the way, to speaking of ethics, that, that having gotten uh, clearance from Coleman to, to, to uh, talk about his writing before, his, his correspondence before, I'm, I'm assuming that's still okay with him. Uh, if I've if I've fucked that up, then, then then I apologize, Coleman, but also you're welcome for demonstrating the ethical conundrum you yourself <laughs> suggested I examine. In this case, though, I did, because this is a new person, I, I did ask specifically. So she was she was uh, said she's not at all precious about her anonymity. This was Alice Allen, and I mention her full name because she she hosts her own poetry podcast. It's called Poetry Says. She is uh, an Australian poet. And uh, I've listened to a few episodes and they're pretty good. 
you know, I, I enjoyed them. They're, they vary in length and they vary in, in sort of focus and, and subject matter a little bit. It always seems to be about poetry. One really good conversation with Justin Clemens, who's an Australian uh, uh, scholar and poet I, I had not heard of, but that was a just t- t- thoroughly enjoyable conversation start to finish. Uh, you know, highbrow, lowbrow, profane, uh, irreverent, all of all of the things I, I like best. And the poem, by the way, because there was one of her poems that, that Justin Clemens read on the one of the episodes I listened to, really good poem that she wrote. So I think I, I am interested in checking out Alice's work now. Alice Allen and the, the, the podcast is Poetry Says. But there were a few different things she, she brought up that I wanted to address. So the, the first thing she said in the, in the first email was, let me read how she put it. Um, Listening to Slee Ricketts has made me question my approach to podcasting. I've gained so much from listening to you speak about the poetry you don't like, as well as the poetry you do. I've realized that consistently praising everything is basically a way to protect myself from having to do the hard thinking about why so much of the poetry I I read leaves me bored and cold. Earlier, there's a really interesting note. This came up, she actually mentions this in the conversation with, with Clemens as well. She says, our, our, our poetry scene in Australia is minuscule. As a result, I've always shied away from taking a critical stance on just about anything for fear of running into the person I've just criticized at the next book launch. Frustratingly, I've found that as soon as I turn off the mic, my guests have exactly the same criticisms as I do, but are similarly hesitant to share them on the record. Incoherence is a big theme, as is laziness. That My whole goal with this podcast, initially at least, was to was to bring the off-mic conversation on mic. I thought of it less as a, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't run a podcast at the time, so I thought of it more as the conversation you have at the bar uh, when the poets are, are loosening up and, and a little bit more frank about their opinions. I, my goal was to bring that on to the mic. I thought about that in a slightly different way so Alice brings up the question of whether or not other poets are hearing what you're saying and whether you might hurt somebody's feelings. And that's, a, again, as with Coleman's question, totally reasonable concern. But there, there's another part of the question that, that I think I had brought to mind and then brought back to mind when Alice wrote this week by a... Uh, a very, very dumb controversy that, that popped up last week. I, I learned about um, through a, a friend who, who keeps track of Twitter for me <laughs> since I am very bad at following anything there. I'll give you the abbreviated version of this stupid Twitter <laughs> controversy. But uh, on September 3rd, Danielle Rose, poet and poetry editor at the, as it happens, quite aptly named Baron Magazine, wrote a a totally innocuous and self-evidently true tweet. I wish poets understood that the general population has no interest in what we do. So, when we speak, we are speaking only to each other. The delusion that poetry is something powerful is a straight line to all kinds of toxic positivities that are really just us lying to ourselves. Uh, With the, the slight qualification that I don't completely know what toxic positivity means as a, as a buzz term. Uh, I, I, th- I think I could not possibly agree more if I tried. <laughs> uh, but also, it's just so, so clearly already obvious. But 
there were, you know, there was a predictable uh, stir among the the riffraff of poetry Twitter, and plenty of people argued with her, and plenty of others said, yes, of course, this is true, and uh, Auden said uh, much the same thing, far more efficiently in his elegy for WB Yeats when he said, of course, for poetry makes nothing happen. Uh, the next day, however, <laughs> the magazine at which she almost certainly was a poetry editor in the sense that she volunteered her time to do free work for this magazine, uh, they, they fired her <laughs> for her unacceptable comments. They, in a, it is an extremely inelegantly written a, a open letter dismissing her and brought up as a just absolute non sequitur the question of uh, uh, celebrating diversity in poetry, which is wonderful, but had absolutely nothing to do with uh, what Danielle Rose said. At any rate, I, I, I appreciated her frankness and her cynicism, and I, I, I very heartily agreed I think there were there were lots of other people who who felt the same way who who chimed in and if if anybody came off bad badly in this whole kerfuffle it was Baron Magazine and their uh, moron of an editor in chief. At any rate, uh, enough of that. They're a very small magazine and, and they they deserve no more free press, good, bad, or otherwise. What Daniel Rose brought up, though, I think is it's a similar but but slightly different question to the one that that Alice raises, which is, how do we talk when nobody's listening? Now, in in Alice's case, she's talking about only being listened to by other poets and wanting to bite one's tongue because of the other poets who might be listening. Not only necessarily, but but significantly being being, uh, listened to by other poets. And In Daniel Rose's case, I think she's talking about a slightly different kind of tongue biting and a slightly different kind of performance, which is done for the benefit of all those who are thought not to be poets. I did, I got a a totally different listener recommended a really wonderful essay this week by George Orwell called Poetry and the Microphone, which I I think I may try to talk a little bit more in in depth about. But Orwell in that essay talks about the question, again, of, of, of presenting poetry favorably to a lay audience, to a non-poetry reading audience. And this is, uh, this is you know, there's an old, old uh, uh, debate about accessibility was the, the old term for it that plenty of people now don't like. And it, it, it goes back and forth between obscurity or difficulty and accessibility or ease or obviousness or the school of quietude. And I, I think that the way Danielle Rose put the question, clarified to me at least some of what I, I guess I, I think I sort of hope to do with this podcast, which is which is not only to speak to other poets, and it's not actively to hurt the feelings of people who are poets, but it's also not to be a uh, not to conduct a PR campaign for poetry, not to try to sell poetry to the masses, but to talk about with poetry and with other literature, because I do talk about other things, to talk about what poets actually want to talk about, 
what's interesting to poets. And that's part of it. When poets get together and they get drunk and they are not on the record, it's not just that they talk shit about each other. They do plenty of that. But they also talk about crunchy technical stuff. They talk about poems they like. They recite poems to each other. They talk about poetry in a way that is not necessarily purely undiplomatic and it's not necessarily purely unapproachable from the lay perspective, but it is infused with a concern for poetry as poetry. This is something uh, Cleanth Brooks said in a, in a little article in the American Scholar, I think in like the 70s. He, he said, kind of offhand, he said, you know, it's so difficult. This is not a direct quote because I don't have it in front of me, but he said, basically, he said, it's so difficult to talk about poetry that given the opportunity, almost everyone will opt to talk about almost anything else instead. And I think that's still completely true today. And it's true, to be honest, in a lot of fucking poetry classes, as well as podcast interviews, readings, uh, and, and and so forth. And, and see, that's the thing that, that got totally drowned out, I think, in this, this silly Daniel Rose controversy, which became all about whether or not you should fire someone for saying something that everybody already obviously knows is true on Twitter or whether uh, you have to be really enthusiastic about whether poetry is good or whether saying poetry is not important also means that diversity in poetry is bad, which again, just, it's total non sequitur, total non sequitur. But I think what what I, I sort of heard, the, the quiet wish I heard in the middle of that initial tweet was, hey, let's talk about what we care about. Not just let's not perform for this other audience, but they, they're they not listening. So let's talk about what we want to talk about with each other, about this thing that we ostensibly like, <laughs> genuinely, even when nobody's paying attention. So I'm, I'm all for that kind of conversation. I'm all for, you know, I, I am very glad that Alice hosts her own podcast, that it's its own, it's its own beast and it has a totally different uh, ethos and and uh, rhythm and uh, has been around a fuck of a lot longer than than mine. So I'm very glad for her to, to her to run it her own way. But I also uh, I'm certainly encourage a little more a little more of the the off mic conversation leaking into the the on mic. In in her other note to me, she had a little a, a brief note about the last episode that she recorded of, of Poetry Says, or the most recent one, which she 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 said she, she was embarrassed that, she said, all right, I'm intensely embarrassed that the last episode of Poetry Says ends with my reading, Derek Mahan's Everything is Going to Be All Right. So I, I, I'm assuming she says she's embarrassed by that because in one of my uh, other episodes in the, the opening, I I closed the, 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 the little opening riff with, a reading of that poem, Everything is Going to Be All Right, as the quintessence of the inspirational non sequitur volta. So I, I totally made fun of that poem. But no, God damn it, Alice, don't be embarrassed. Don't apologize. I, I you know, I, to the extent to which I will f- honestly talk shit about poems I don't like or poets I think are fraudulent or uh, trends I think are silly in poetry to, to the extent to which I will do that. And like, fuck, if, if, what do I know? I mean, who am I? So like, why, why listen to me anyway? But, but most importantly, what I never want to do, what I'm never interested in doing is saying you should not like the thing you actually like. 
If you enjoy a poem, if you take pleasure in a poem, good. That's the point. I have no qualms with that. If you may love poems, I despise. That's fine. I, I, have, I really have no quarrel with that at all. My quarrel is when people elevate, promote, praise poetry that they don't actually like. I like lots of stuff that is probably not very good. I am a total sucker for certain kinds of pop songs. I love the the original, not even the cool Maggie Maggie Gyllenhaal version. I, I love the original version of Billy Joel's uh, Just the Way You Are. It couldn't be cheesier. And I, I love it. I'm a total sucker for it. So like what you like, enjoy what you enjoy, and, and share the poems that you take pleasure in. That's that's what it's all about. Uh, so no, I, I I refuse to accept your embarrassment, Alice. You continue to like that fucking poem. Uh, I think we have a slightly different taste. I think we probably disagree about Terrence Hayes. But no, I genuinely like what you genuinely like. That's the whole that's the whole argument. My my quarrel is with the the tailors selling the emperor clothes, or uh, or in some cases, as with the Ocean Vuong, and I think Kava Akbar taking the emperor's word for it on the, about their own clothes that they have themselves made. So the, on, the only other thing that I wanted to say about, about Alice was in one of her episodes, she read a poem by Emily Dickinson that I, that I quite like and asked a question about the, the end of the poem. This is in, in the, the entry I have here. The numbering on Emily Dickinson poems seems to vary. There's some... I, I studied with with uh, Mary Jo Salter, who's a, who's a genuine expert on Emily Dickinson, so I, I really ought to know her better than I do. But uh, on this, on the Poetry Foundation, they had this marked as as um, number four seventy nine. This is the poem that begins because I could not stop for death. Uh, so so she read it, and uh, it's funny. Of all of the poem, the part that I find least confusing is the end, and that seemed to be the part that Alice had the most trouble with. So I appreciated her reading of the, of the whole poem. And then she she said she couldn't make heads or tails of the last stanza, uh, which I take to be a little bit of an exaggeration. But you know, if anything, I'm most confused by the beginning. But I, I'll, I'll read the poem because then I, I just have two, two, maybe two quick thoughts on it. So it's a terrific poem. This is Because I Could Not Stop for Death. Because I could not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. The carriage held but just ourselves and immortality. We slowly drove. He knew no haste, and I had put away my labor and my leisure too for his civility. We passed the school where children strove at recess in the ring. We passed the fields of gazing grain. We passed the setting sun. Or rather, he passed us. The dews drew quivering and chill for only gossamer my gown, my tippet only tool. We paused before a house that seemed a swelling of the ground. The roof was scarcely visible, the cornice in the ground. Since then, tis centuries, and yet feels shorter than the day I first surmised the horses' heads were toward eternity. So that last stanza ends with a dash. Uh, Emily Dickinson's famous for her dashes. It also has a dash, uh, the setting off the phrase, tis centuries. 
Or I guess that's a clause, tis centuries. Yeah, I think. I'm not going to diagram that sentence. Uh, so Dickens is famous for her for her dashes, and as uh, some other critics and scholars have pointed out, you know, in the manuscript form, the dashes are a little bit ambiguous, and maybe they're even vertical, and maybe they mean one thing, maybe they mean another. So Alice did have a question about the poem ending with a dash, and I have a thought about that, but it's probably a a fool's enterprise to rest any interpretation of a poem on punctuation itself, except maybe in the case of. Odin of Grecian Urn, though maybe I'm an idiot there as well. The last stanza is, Since then tis centuries, and yet feels shorter than the day I first surmised the horses' heads were toward eternity. Uh, this is a poem in which the, 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 the rough outline of the action that seems to be taking place is that death picked this speaker up in a carriage. There was nobody in the carriage but death, the speaker, and immortality whatever that means. Uh, again, that, the first answer is the one I find most baffling. They drive away. It sounds a little bit like a hearse. They're sort of driving sort of slowly. Uh, she has given up her labor and her leisure, which is to say all of her time for his civility. Uh, they're, they're passing by all of these uh, emblems of, of life and of time passing for humans on earth. And uh, there's also a, a, a stanza that seems to be describing maybe a shroud or something like this. The dews drew quivering and chill. Beautiful. I find that stanza kind of confusing. Uh, and then the, the penultimate stanza, we paused before a house that seemed a swelling of the ground. What did the house look like? It looked like a swelling of the ground. That is to say, a grave. The roof was scarcely visible. The cornice in the ground. It's ground with ground there, just to hammer it home. So it seems that they have arrived at their destination, which is which is the the icy grave. And then the last stanza uh, is the one to me that weirdly is the most intuitive. Since then, since that trip we took in the carriage, and then she sets off and dashes. Tis centuries. That's a fucking amazing dilation of time. She just zooms way out there. Oh yeah, all of that stuff we were just talking about that happened centuries ago. And yet, feels shorter than the day. One day felt longer than all of those hundreds of years that have passed since I took this little trip with death. What day was that that feels longer? The day I first surmised the horses' heads were toward eternity. That seems not even like a day. That seems like a a second, a split second. I first surmised the horses. Alice said she didn't understand the bit about the horses' heads. I, the way I read this, at least, is that there was this moment when she was in the carriage. She, she got into a carriage with death. <laughs> She'd given everything up for him. They were passing by, driving slow like a hearse. Uh, they were, they, there was this, this whole uh, sort of ceremonial description of her, her garments. They arrive at the grave. But there's this moment that, that, that really that could have lasted hundreds of years, which was simply the moment she, she surmised the horse's heads. She couldn't see the horse's heads more than the carriage, but if the horse's heads were toward anything, that means if the horse's heads were pointed toward anything, I think what that means is that's where you're going. If you're in a carriage and the horse's heads are pointed in a particular direction, that's the direction you're going in. I first surmised the horse's heads were toward eternity. 
which would seem to be the most obvious thing in the world. The, the, the day, what was longer than these centuries and centuries that have passed since all of this, the thing that was longer than that was the recognition that the carriage I was in was headed toward eternity. That is, that this was going to be forever. Well, we already, in the first line, we already were talking about death. We were already getting in a carriage. This should be the most obvious thing in the world. This should not need this should not need to be remarked upon. And it certainly shouldn't be the most important moment in this whole process. But it is. And it again, it intuitively makes perfect sense to me that it is. Because this is this is, of course, that that same that same thing that we, you know, Freud has the line, I mentioned in another episode, the, the thing about the husband saying, if, if one of us should die, I would move to Paris. Because of course, one always imagines oneself surviving. You know, you, you, even when we talk about death, we're talking about somebody else's death. We're talking, we read this poem and we, we think it's, it's chilling and it's inspiring and it's spooky, and, but it's this death at a distance. It's death at arm's length. We're talking about death spelled on a piece of paper. It's not my death. This is Emily Dickinson's speaker talking about death. And and that what she tells us in the poem is that she has the same experience. Even the speaker in this poem, who is in a carriage with death, has the same feeling of removal, the same feeling of exception. Oh, but not not forever, not not there. Not I'm not going to go there stay there forever, like the fucking five wits in the everyman. This moment she realized, oh, this is for keeps. That's the, this is that existential slap that we always talk about, or that we always talk about, that I always talk about on this fucking show, where I apparently only have one topic. <laughs> Since then, tis centuries, and yet feels shorter than the day I first surmised the horse's heads were toward eternity, dash. That's the end of the poem. Now, as I said, I don't want to put much stock in punctuation. But if I were to put stock in punctuation, then I would say that uh, the, the line that this most reminds me of is another line from Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. It ends with, I don't have the script in front of me, but I believe it's Guildenstern alone on stage. I believe, I believe he's the last one on stage. And he has this little this little speech about maybe it could have been different, maybe something else might have happened, uh, but it didn't because they were who they were. Their fate was what it was. And he's 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 very aware of being on stage. They both are, the, the two leads. They're very aware that they're in a play, just as Hamlet is very aware that he's in a play in, in his play. And the last line of the whole play. Which is, which is largely about death and existence. The last line of the whole play is, now you see me, now you... And it ends with a dash. So that's what I thought of, Alice, for whatever that's worth, which is probably not fucking much. I, I do have one more note on Emily Dickinson, and this is a... This is kind of a crackpot theory. It's not exclusively an Emily Dickinson theory. I just think she's a very good example of, of it or a good demonstration of it. In the 
back and forth between writers of meter and rhyme and writers of free verse that is as i I think i've said elsewhere i think it's sort of cooled down a little bit in america in recent years but in that back and forth there one of the things that 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 one of the refrains from both from uh, uh defenders of form and the occasional free verse uh, apologists for form, like the, uh, Rebecca Hazelton's sort of bizarre essay in poetry a few years ago. One of, one of the, the themes of this conversation is that those who write free verse without first learning how to write in regular meter and rhyme uh, lack a, a certain control or mastery of the language. They, they certainly, you know, by definition, they lack certain uh, skills with the language, but they maybe don't have as strong a sense of uh, the 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 way that their poems sound. I, I'm not really interested in in arguing about that question. And actually, in one of the episodes of Alice's uh, podcast, she she talks about that and and concludes uh, with with the leader of the workshop she was in that uh, actually you don't need to learn <laughs> meter and rhyme. So. Uh, Yeah, as I said, I'm I'm not going to take that on as a question in itself. But I do think that there is an element of poetry that writers of regular meter and rhyme have a strong sense of that people who write in free verse tend not to or not as much, especially those who write in what... uh, uh, Alan Shapiro distinguishes between phrasal free verse, which is free verse that sort of breaks at normal clauses and phrases, normal pausing points and sentences, and uh, enjammed free verse or heavily enjammed free verse, which which breaks up, uh, breaks lines all, all over the place wherever, uh, regardless of the the grammar of the sentence. Uh, uh, Sharon Olds being a classic example of a, a of someone who starts lines strong and ends them uh, with a shrug, <laughs> or breaks them with a shrug, I should say. But but I, I think that the 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 thing I'm talking about right now is is line integrity, the sense of what a line is in itself. I mean, really, this is the the simplest definition of what we might call formal poetry or or formal verse is that one measures the length of the line by the sound. The sound is what determines how long the line is. One of the consequences here is that though not infrequently sentences, sentence endings and line breaks coincide just as paragraph endings and stanza breaks often coincide, they don't necessarily do so. So there is really a, a meaningful unit independent of the sentence, which is which is the line. And I think that's a much that's a, a unit with a much stronger currency among formal poets than among free verse poets. I, I would actually say that in my own experience as a reader and you know on some days writer of poetry, <laughs> Uh, the line is the essential unit of the poem, far more important than the word, than the foot, than the phrase, than the stanza, is the line. You know, the, the, the way that I know I have 
definitely started writing a poem is that I have written the first line. Maybe it'll change. Maybe I'll fiddle with it. Maybe I'll throw the whole thing away. But I know if I have one line down, then I know I've started the poem. If I have an outline, if I have a phrase, if I have some words, if I have an argument, but I don't have a line down, then I have not started writing the poem. Take or leave the particulars of that criterion. I, I, th I think that a lot of formal poets will have a, a similar feeling about the matter. Now, I, I don't think that it's important for free verse poets to change the way they think about poetry or to adopt this way of measuring poems. I, I don't think that's all that important at all. I do, however, think that uh, maybe in free verse discussions of poetry, there are certain considerations that go, that, 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 that get not quite enough attention. And, and, and line integrity, I think, is probably one of them. I, I, I bring all this up because I, I think that there is, to write poetry well requires a, not just one skill or one gift, but a, a, a set. And, and any given real life writer of poems is going to be stronger in some of these than in others. I would say that uh, certainly, you know, being a natural rhymer is a, is a skill some poets have. It's not mine, though I do mostly write in meter and rhyme. Uh, my friend Ryan talks often about having a strong right hand, which is to say the hand of invention versus a strong left hand, which is the hand of, of criticism and revision. And of course, a really good poet needs to have both. And a great poet tends to have, tends to be really great at most of these things. Emily Dickinson is definitely a great poet. But I do think that she is an interesting example because even in her greatness, she is a lopsided poet. So because the line exists independent of the sentence, and because even met metrically regular verse is not quite the same thing as music, if it were, then we could just hum poems without worrying about what any of the words were. Because of this, there is such a thing as the goodness of a line that is, you know, related to, but not exactly dependent upon things like the music of the line or the wit of the line or the uh, symmetry of the line, the formal invention of the line, the argument of the line. All of these things are important and all of them contribute, but there is also this other thing, which is the je ne sais quoi, the, the ineffable quality of a good line. If you write and if you read, then uh, uh, you know, formal poetry, a fair amount, then you have some sense of what this is. I have some sense of it, mostly because my own gifts are so fucking limited. When I sit down with Ryan and we work on each other's poetry, the exchange goes in a pretty predictable way. He reads my poems. He <laughs> produces on the spot a thorough and inerrant analysis of the whole thing. He provides 
a deep historical context with a discussion of antecedents and trends and tendencies. Even in my own work, he breaks down the structure of the poem, the argument of the poem, the sound of the poem, and he provides meaningful suggestions based on this really comprehensive understanding that he has demonstrated <laughs> on a cold read because he's really fucking smart and very well read. Uh, my contribution consistently is one thing. There, there's, there's seldom anything I can tell Ryan about a poem of his that he doesn't already know. He can explain my poems to me better than I can to myself. The, the thing I really offer is the ability to pick up a poem, point to a few different lines, and say, hey, uh, switch this word around, change this out, replace this with this, and it'll sound better. It'll land better. The line will be better. That's about what I'm able to offer critically as a reader. <laughs> but but I do I do think partly because of my own experience that there is such a thing as the the worth of a line in itself. And certainly there is such a thing as the ability to step out of the darkness and invent a line from scratch. An opening line seizes our attention. It makes us want to know more. It, it changes our understanding of what an opening line could be. A really great line makes us say, oh, I didn't know you could do that. It, it starts from scratch using sound and using sense and using this other slightly difficult to pin down intersection of the two. And it makes us stop and listen. That is a gift to be able to do that. And it's one, you know, poets have in varying degrees. It, it, there, is, there is another ability, and I would say uh, this is less of a gift than a skill, though there's, there's, a, there's a little bit of both. And that is the ability to write a second line. Because a second line, simply to write a, a great standalone first line, and then to write a great standalone second line, is not really to begin a poem. It's to begin two different poems. A great second line is not stepping out of the darkness, it's stepping out of the first line. If the first line makes you want to read more, the second line has to be more, while also not being merely a syllogistic uh, byproduct of the first line. It has to continue whatever the game or the magic or the beauty of the poem is in a way that also uh, it, it, that is not any that is no longer quite as inventive in the first line because it can't be. It's a second line. It is a sequitur, not a non sequitur. As I said, a really great poet has to be good at all of this different stuff. And, and I would say that when it came to writing second lines, to the sequitur function of poetic composition, to the 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 follow up, the argument, the consequences to that critical, that left-hand function of poem writing, I think Emily Dickinson was extraordinarily good. I think she was really, really excellent at writing second lines. The problem, however, is that she was one in a trillion 
at writing first lines. She was maybe limiting myself just to English language poetry. She's maybe the best writer of first lines who has ever lived. And certainly among major poets, it's really difficult to think of anybody who is so well known for so many first lines of poems, the second lines of which almost nobody remembers. You know, the the distant, distant runners up might be somebody like Thomas Wyatt or Gwendolyn Brooks, who were both also had really had really strong first line game, and then some of their poems taper off a little bit after that. But with Emily Dickinson, it's just this no fucking contest. I'm just gonna read you just I quickly pulled these together. This is just ten first lines from Emily Dickinson. And in some cases, because her lines were very short, it's the first and second line that kind of create a, a unit. So in some cases, it's not just the first line. It's the first and second line versus the, the third and fourth. But here, these are, these are 10 openers from Emily Dickinson. Much madness is divinest sense. Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Forever is composed of nows. Success is counted sweetest by those who ne'er succeed. I dwell in possibility, a fairer house than prose. My life had stood a loaded gun. I heard a fly buzz when I died. Hope is the thing with feathers. After great pain, a formal feeling comes. Because I could not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. So, apart from observing uh, you, apart, apart from making the uh, the supremely unoriginal observation that Emily Dickinson was better at first lines than second lines, what, what am I saying? I, I think maybe not very much, but but maybe I'm saying this because there is such a thing as the ineffable virtue of a first line, and it is uh, not unrelated to, but still distinct from things like grammar. Things like the argument, as well as the music of, of the poem. For all my carrying on about coherence, it's maybe important to remember that coherence in a poem, even that, is not really an end in itself. It is a means to an end, that end being connection. You know, uh, Aristotle said all, all art aspires to the condition of music and I think some formal poets have taken this to mean that that poetry or art should aspire to be music but that's not really it because because the condition of music is one of communication without interpretation it's one in which the thing conveyed is conveyed as itself but yeah I I guess I I, I don't backtrack from my <laughs> from my harangues against incoherence, and I do still value coherence. But it is not the end; it's not really the goal. And you know, by the time we get to the end of this Emily Dickinson poem that that Alice talked about, because I could not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. By the time we get to the end, that's one in which I think that's I think that's that's one that ends quite well. Uh, since then, tis centuries, and yet feel shorter than the day I first surmised the horses' heads were towards eternity. I don't have it in front of me, so I might have gotten a couple of those words a little bit wrong. 
that ending makes some sense of the beginning, which is unbelievably catchy, but actually kind of hard to parse because I could not stop for death. He kindly stopped for me. I get death stopped for me or death picked me up. I get the image of getting into death's carriage. But what does it mean that I could not stop for death? I mean, is it as simple as like, like a, a 19th century, oh, I can't go on a date with you because I have to wash my hair joke? Because that doesn't seem quite satisfying. It has a symmetry to it and it lands, feels compelling. It makes us want to listen more. It connects to, to you know, invoke Ian e. Forster, only connect. It does that, but it doesn't really make sense, I would say, until the end. Because I could not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. Even after getting in his carriage, she hasn't stopped for him. She hasn't, it hasn't sunk home with her. She hasn't reckoned with it until she, she, she saw or she surmised the horses' heads were toward eternity until she realized they were going where they were going forever. But I still think that the, the, the opening of that poem, like the opening of so many others, my life had stood a loaded gun, hope was the thing with feathers. I heard a fly buzz when I died. They're great, they're immortal lines. I don't really think it's all that useful to ask what they mean. But only, and this is maybe the, <laughs> this is maybe the key, it is not important to ask what they mean only because they already obviously do the job. And that is the difference between this sort of mysterious, ineffable, um, super coherence and your ordinary run-of-the-mill poetry magazine, lazy, uh, presumptuous incoherence. Maybe, maybe that's it, to get back to my, my griefs and grievances. This is a poem by Robert Hayden. I'm just gonna read it once and I won't say too much about it. I will say that it, reading it, uh, it made me wonder if Paul Muldoon had read this poem before he wrote his uh, really wonderful short poem, Why Brownlee Left, which has a little, a little bit of a similar feel to it. This poem is called Unidentified Flying Object. It's by Robert Hayden, and it originally appeared in Words in the Morning Time, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, Words in the Morning Time, which was published in 1970. Unidentified Flying Object by Robert Hayden. It's true Maddie Lee has clean disappeared. And shouldn't we notify the sheriff? No use, Will insists. No earthly use. He was sleeping one off under the trees that night, he claims, and woke up when the spaceship landed. A silvery dome with gassy green and red-hot looking lights like eyes that stared, blinked, stared. Says he hid himself in the bushes and watched, shaking. Pretty soon, a hatch slides open. A ramp glides forward like a glowing tongue poked out. And who or what is it, silently present there? 
same as if Will's trying to peer through webs and bars of gauzy glare, screening, distorting, a shape he sees yet cannot see. But crazier than that was when Maddie Lee came running from her house toward the thing. She's wearing her sunflower hat and the dress the lady she cooked for gave her, and it's like she's late for work, the way she scurries up the ramp, and it seems to Will that in its queer shining, plain Maddie Lee's transformed, is every teasing brown he's ever wanted, never had. He's fixing to shout, Come back, Maddie Lee, come back! But a heavy hand is over his mouth when he hears her laugh as she steps inside without even a goodbye glance around. The next Will knew, the UFO rose in the air, no blast-off roar, no flame, he says, hung in the dark, hovered, shimmered, its eyes pulsing, then whirred, spiraling into the sky, vanished as though it had never been. Will's tale, anyhow. All I'm certain of is Maddie Lee's nowhere to be found, and must have gone off in a hurry left her doors unlocked, and the radio on, and a roast in the oven. Strange. As for Will, he's a changed man, not drinking nowadays, and sad. Maddie Lee's friends, she's got no kinfolks, lived alone, are worried. Swear Will was craving her, and she held herself too good for him, being head of Mount Nebo's usher board and such. And some are hinting what I, for one, well, never mind. The talk is getting mean. It's just, I think, a, a really wonderfully gossipy, true-to-life account of how a, a small community digests a sort of a bizarre event or tale of an event or maybe something inexplicable. There, you know, there, there's, I think, uh, there are a few different kind of obvious readings. One is that everything Will says is true and, and Maddie Lee was sort of abruptly abducted or, or, or rather uh, ran off happily with a, a crew of aliens. <laughs> you know, another possibility is that as the narrator suggests at the end, that maybe Will did away with Maddie Lee in a fit of jealousy. And he made up this story to cover up her, her absence. But there are, there, are other, there are other nuances that kind of cut through all of this. You know, it's her family, for one. They're worried about her, but they also, they're the ones who, who sort of blame her, maybe. They hold her responsible for... Uh, for for holding herself too good for Will. And Will himself even suggests, though, that, that maybe he didn't really, he didn't crave her enough. He, he didn't, he wasn't interested in her until he saw her transformed in the light of this, you know, possibly imaginary event. He's also a heavy drinker. And so we don't know whether he saw all this or not. 
But whatever happened, he doesn't drink anymore. He's changed. He's sadder. And Maddie Lee is gone. And it is, you know, it's a a wonderful uh, and, and obviously very pregnant omission when the speaker says, some are hinting what I, for one, you know, suggesting he, he's got his suspicions, but never mind. We don't, it needn't be said, the talk is getting mean. And, you know, there, of course, the, the suggestion is that the, the talk is mean and maybe it is about mean things as well and that, that maybe it is about something very mean or horrible or, or wicked that Will may have done. But, but I, I, I know that for Robert Hayden, mean would necessarily also have had its other older meaning, which is that it's getting small. The talk is getting small. That, that one of the things that this big wild tale suggests is that, you know, this community of people, uh, Maddie Lee was a was someone who who went to another woman's house to cook, we're told, because this other woman gave her gave her a, a sunflower hat and dress. The lady she cooked for gave her. So Maddie Lee goes to another woman's house to cook, and she was far too good for Will. So these are these are not these are not the high and mighty. And yet there is something grand about Will's tale. Even if it's a lie, even if it's a hallucination, there is something important, transcendent about it, and that it has something to do with them, that maybe some something bigger and better and greater and more important out there deigned to step down and come specifically to them. And so Maddie Lee's disappearance also has a little bit of the air of, you know, one of those uh, assumptions into heaven that happened in the Bible. Was it Enoch who walked with God, one of those figures from the Old Testament? Like uh, Heracles, who, who has an apotheosis, which is one of those words that gets uh, so wild, widely misused that it, it almost has lost its original meaning, which was which was for uh, to become a god. Uh, but in, in some way, Maddie Lee, even if only in legend, became something a little bit bigger and better than may have seemed possible in this community. And so not just for the sake of avoiding gossip, but also for that reason, the the narrator of the poem steps back, pulls back from, from some of the uglier suggestions because the talk is getting mean, it's getting too small for this thing that has a little little residue of wonder to it. So that was Unidentified Flying Object by Robert Hayden. And this is Slee Ricketts. Thank you so much for listening. You can always reach me at sleericketts at gmail.com. Please do write in if you have any questions, suggestions, comments, complaints, or uh, really, please do, I mean it, let me know if there are people you would like to hear interviewed, if there are topics you'd like to hear discussed, if there's something I ought to read that I haven't heard about. Please do let me know. I, I, I will be grateful and then you may get your wish. <laughs> so thank you very much. It is, it is a pleasure as always. With any luck, I will be speaking to you again very soon. Until then. <laughs> <laughs>